In this Bible talk, Murray Cappell preaches from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, under the heading, Holiness in the Local Church. Murray Cappell teaches practical theology at the Reformed Theological College, Melbourne, and is a member of the TGCA Council. This was the third keynote address at TGCA's 2022 National Conference. However, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they may make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. It's been uh, such an encouragement, hasn't it, being together? And uh, I think we've also seen yesterday and today that the reading of God's Word is a ministry of the Word And I've so enjoyed the reading of Scripture. And now I have the privilege of preaching uh, this passage that we've just read in Titus 2. I'd like to begin by asking you, do you go to a beautiful church? I'm assuming most of us here, perhaps all of us here, go to church. Do you go to a beautiful church? Which, of course, begs the question, what on earth is a beautiful church? God has hardwired us to love beauty. We love the beauty of creation. Maybe you love a sunset or the beach or mountains or lakes. We love beautiful food and drink. How many cooking shows are there on TV? Because people just love their food. We love beautiful faces and beautiful places. My, uh, my youngest daughter has just finished a, a backpacking trip through Europe, and she was almost daily for six weeks sending us endless photos, like absolutely spamming us with photos of beautiful castles and beautiful cathedrals and beautiful villages and beautiful scenery. And man, we just loved it. Like we have just had this free virtual tour of Europe 
and it's beautiful. We love beautiful. So what would it mean to go to a beautiful church? I think here in Titus chapter 2, Paul shows us what a beautiful church looks like. Here is a picture of an attractive church. As Paul maps that, and as we look at these verses, it's worth noting what he doesn't talk about as he sketches a beautiful church. There's nothing here about the building, the facilities, the aesthetics. The early church actually didn't have church buildings, not till about the third century. They met in homes. All our attention to buildings and facilities and aesthetics is not fundamental to what a beautiful church is all about. Here also, surprisingly, there's nothing about programs. Now, I guess they probably had some programs in the church in Crete, like they maybe, you know, kids program, Cretan Critters or something. Uh, I, I imagine they, they had that kind of stuff, but Paul's not talking about that. Most surprisingly, there's nothing about the music ministry, which is surely a huge oversight. I don't know how Paul could have missed that. But actually, the, the early church missed that for an awful long time. Uh, no music groups other than singers for about 700 years. That's, that's just a little sobering and actually worth thinking about. In these verses, Paul maps beautiful, attractive church in a different way. And he primes Titus here with the what, the who, and the why of a beautiful church. He tells Titus what he is to teach, who he is to teach, and why this matters. So let's uh, dig into those three things. First of all, the what, which is in verse 1, what Titus is to teach. And you notice that it begins with that strong contrast, you, however, because in the previous verses, the end of chapter 1, he's been talking about these false teachers whose teaching has led to false and ungodly living. Look at verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Toxic teaching leads to toxic living. You, however, Titus, are to be completely different from that. In your speaking, in your teaching, in your small groups, in your mentoring, in your preaching, in your one-to-ones, in your pastoral visitation, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Now, that word sound is a favorite word of Paul in the pastoral letters. It's a medical term, and it means healthy. I have a bunch of uh, wee grandkids, which is actually a lot of fun. 
and I just noticed there's, any, there's such a difference between when they're sick and when they're healthy. When, when the little grandkids are sick, like a, a bunch of our grandkids around two and three, okay? If they're sick, they're, they're grumpy. They're miserable. They're listless. They're whingy. They're snotty. And it's the wonderful thing about being a grandparent is you just give them back. Like, you go home. But we also have a, uh, a, a grandkid who's three years old, and he just seems to be ridiculously healthy. He is just bristling with energy. He is such a ball of fun and enthusiasm. He's only three. He's tiny. He's already heaps stronger than I am, which ain't hard, but he, he, is, a, he is a little goer. He's vibrant. He's primed for action. He is really healthy. And the gospel is like that. The gospel is full of life and vibrancy and energy. Sound doctrine doesn't mean dead orthodoxy. Sound doctrine means healthy gospel that's full of life and vitality, is energetic and and just brilliant. But notice that uh, Paul doesn't say here, teach sound doctrine, teach healthy gospel. That, that's a given. He says that elsewhere. Titus must do that. He must teach healthy doctrine. Later in this chapter, and again in chapter 3, Paul will give brilliant summaries of the gospel of this healthy, vibrant gospel truth, which Titus is to be teaching. But what he says here is, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach what lines up with it. Teach what squares with it. Teach the healthy way of life that goes with healthy gospel teaching. Uh, Paul is picking up on the very thing that he said right at the start of Titus. He speaks there in verse 1 of the whole book of the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Knowledge of the truth leading to godliness. And that's now what he's picking up again and saying, that's what you've got to teach. You've got to teach the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. You've got to teach what aligns with sound doctrine. So Paul is actually reversing his usual order here in chapter 2. Usually he goes from the gospel indicative to the gospel imperative. From what Jesus has done for us uh, in, in his saving death and his resurrection through to the implications of that for how we are to live. He typically moves, moves from doctrine to life, from belief to practice. But in Titus 2, he flips the order, and he maps in verses 1 to 10 the way of life, how to live the gospel, and then he's going to go afterwards to the foundation of that. In verses 11 uh, to 14, notice the the first word of verse 11, for, he, he maps all this godly living there, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God teaches us to say no. The grace of God teaches us to, uh, what to say yes to. Uh, that's not my text. I'm not allowed to go there. It's coming. Richard's going to do it. 
But that is the foundation for what we're looking at in verses 1 to 10. And these verses, verses 1 to 10, will show us very clearly what it is that aligns with the gospel. Now, we'll look at the detail in a moment, but what's very clear, just as you skim verses 2 to 10, is that what aligns with healthy doctrine is holy living. Biblical truth leads to godly lives. When there's poor teaching, you get poor living. If there's weak gospel, dodgy gospel, no gospel, you get weak, dodgy, ungodly lives. Poor gospel leads to legalism or to complacency or to arrogance or to traditionalism. But healthy doctrine leads to holy living. The reality is, though, it's possible to have a church that's all about biblical faithfulness and sound doctrine, but there's little evidence of the godliness that aligns with that. They love the gospel and they fight with people. They have a a head for the truth, but little heart for others. They believe the doctrines of grace, but they don't really show the grace of the doctrines. It's like you have a new razor. You can buy some pretty fancy razors, I've found. And you've got this new razor, and you're just thrilled with it. The handle is just so beautifully contoured. It's an all-new 24-blade razor. (laughs) You just sort of stroke the blade. They're so sharp. And the, the head pivots beautifully. You are enamored with this beautiful razor. But you never use it. Wherever. Just... Even though you have a great razor, you're a hairy beast. (laughs) God's word is not just meant to be admired for how sharp it is. It's meant to cut into our hearts. When you read the Bible for yourself, Let it do that. One of the great occupational hazards of those of us who are in gospel ministry is we become professionals with the Word, and we always go to the Word to get a word for others. But we need to go to the Word that the Word would be cutting us to the heart, shaping us, shaving us, making us more godly, drawing us to Jesus, feeding our souls. When I water uh, pot plants... You know that if a pot plant is dry, you you can't just dump the whole jug full of water on it. You have to trickle it in slowly so that it seeps down and soaks in. And, And you and I, 
as gospel workers and pastors and church leaders, we need to do that with the word. We let it, need to let it be soaking down slowly and deeply into our souls so that we are shaped by the word of truth. And then as you minister the word to other people, you need to be doing that. Uh, Paul's going to say it again and again and again. Teach this and teach this and teach this. And he's always saying, teach godliness. Apply the word, not just in the last couple of minutes of your message or the last question of your hour-long Bible study. Oh, and now, just before we go, um, any thoughts on how this applies to our lives? In closing, let me make a couple of applicatory remarks when everyone's already gone to sleep. It's ridiculous. The whole of the message, the, the whole ministry of God's word... The, the whole vibrant truth of the gospel is to be shaping hearts and lives and molding us to be more and more like Jesus. There's this risk amongst us gospel coalition types that our hearts can't keep up with our heads. But a beautiful church is one that works hard to close that gap. A beautiful church is one where people's lives more and more align to the vibrancy of the gospel itself. Well, what does that look like in practice? Paul will now show us. Paul does exactly what he's telling Titus to do. And he does so as he moves from the what in verse 1 to the who in verses 2 to 10. Who in the church are to live godly lives? Who in the local church are to be holy? <laughs> Quite simply, everyone. In chapter 1, Paul has called for the appointment of godly elders, godly leaders. And he intends there to be a trickle-down effect from godly leaders into a godly church. Just as there was a trickle-down effect from the false teachers creating false living in the church, now he wants the godly leadership of the church to be producing godly church members. And Paul will go on here to address six Distinct categories covering age and gender and occupation. There are six things for older men. Four things for older women. Six things for younger women. One thing for younger men because they can only think about one thing at a time. Four things for Titus. Five things for servants. That's 26 things all up. And as he addresses each group, he's not random in what he says to them. You can see Paul's pastoral wisdom here. He's quite specific and pointed in what he says to each group. He knows the particular strengths and weaknesses of these different kinds of people. He knows how they can be ugly and how they can be beautiful. It's really a great model right here of good sermon application. It's what the Puritans would have called close dealing with the heart. Close dealing with the heart. It's as if you do a SWOT analysis on the different kind of hearers you have, and then you press in to their distinct heart conditions. Richard Baxter said, That which is spoken to all 
or to many, doth seem to most as spoken to none. Uh, that, that is, if, if all your application is very broad and vague and general, most people can just let that drift over them or very comfortably apply it to their friend. I hope they're listening. Maybe you're doing that right now. That's exactly what he needs to hear. Man, I wish his preaching was like that. As Paul addresses these different groups quite pointedly, he's giving a picture of what a beautiful church will be like. So let's have a a look at what he says here. Uh, First of all, he shows what it will be to have a, a, a beautiful church of godly older men. Verse 2. Now, older could be um, 40s or 50s or 60s or more. There are different sort of ancient opinions on when old began. Uh, let's just say you're older when you're not younger. Uh, you know who you are. There's a lot of you. you can easily be an old fool you can easily be a grumpy old man I've been getting some practice at that at times unfortunately you can be old and over it ready to sign out from church life time to to just pursue holidays and hobbies. But Paul has a better vision of godly older blokes in the church. He pictures there in verse 2, men marked by dignity and maturity, temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound, There's that word again, healthy. (laughs) Their their, their bodies are increasingly unhealthy, perhaps, but their hearts are more and more healthy the older they get. Healthy, sound in faith, in love, endurance. When I laid a brick path a little while ago, the first thing I did was compact crushed rock to create a solid base you older guys you know who you are that's what you are to be in church life not painful old gatekeepers not difficult grumpy old men not absent because you've become a grey nomad but rock solid healthy firm and isn't that beautiful? Like I know a bunch of guys like that, and it's such a beautiful thing to know godly older men who are solid and sound and reliable and over a lifetime have been shaped by the gospel and they've just become lovely old men. And, you know, they didn't become like that when they had their 70th birthday. They'd been becoming like that for a lifetime and had grown into being godly old men. 
That's a beautiful thing. And it's also a beautiful thing to have godly older women active in ministry in the church. It was common in Crete for uh, older women to be loose with the tongue and free with wine. And Paul expects Christian women to be different. The word reverent that he uses uh, there for them is, is interesting. It, it actually comes from the word that can mean priestess. And it kind of almost has this connotation of, of older women being like priestesses in the community. Reverent, respectable, godly, sacred women in the church community. And he has this beautiful picture of these godly older women passing on that kind of godliness to younger women, teaching, mentoring, encouraging the younger women. That's great pastoral wisdom again, isn't it? It's not going to be a great idea for Titus to spend lots of his time investing into the young women. Wasn't a great idea then, wouldn't be a great idea now. Smart to avoid that. Even smarter to use the wisdom and the experience of godly older women to have an active ministry in the church of teaching and encouraging and training. And so how beautiful when they do that, that you have lots of, of godly younger women in the life of the church. Now I know that uh, lots of people don't see what Paul says next about the younger women as beautiful at all uh, in, in these Verses, isn't this Paul the chauvinist? Paul the misogynist. Keep women at home, serving their husbands and making lots of babies. But like the other exhortations here, Paul is pressing the gospel onto real life people in real life situations. He's not saying you have to marry. But in the context he's speaking into, it was a fair assumption that the Women were married. The younger women were married, arranged marriages. And some of them, perhaps many of them in the churches in Crete, I'm not sure, may well have been married to unbelieving husbands. And if they're typical Cretan men, they're married to liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. With a pagan husband and an arranged marriage, it's pretty easy, I imagine, not to feel very loving towards them. But the gospel is all about love. We've been saved by love. We were the, well, the evil brutes and the lazy gluttons. We were sinners and God in his amazing love reached out to us and reconciled himself to us and dealt with our sin. He saved us. God, our Savior, saved us. And Paul wants the, the younger women to be helped by the older women to know how to do that right there in their own homes, loving their husbands, loving their kids, being pure, being godly at home. That doesn't mean women can't go outside the home, can't work, but it does mean God and the Bible honours a woman's investment in her home, in her husband and in her children the Bible never sees that as second rate or a waste of your life. No, it sees it as a beautiful thing. It upholds the virtue of working hard 
to create a loving, godly home. Is it hard to work out how to do that well? Absolutely, I think it's very hard. Is it difficult these days to balance that with perhaps career or further study or society expectations? That is very hard. I think it's harder than ever. Uh, I should ask the women, you have to answer this quietly in your own heart. Is it hard to love husbands? <laughs> I say answer quietly, you'll embarrass them. <laughs> but ask my wife. Man, I think it's really hard to love husbands. Because even if you're married to a believer, you're married to someone within dwelling sin. Is it hard to consist consistently love and disciple your kids? It's really hard. Every one of them is a little sinner. And then there's all their different temperaments and issues and stuff going on in their lives. How wise then for Paul to say, we need the older women taking up a ministry amongst the younger women where they help them think through this stuff and encourage them and give them direction and perspective because they've been there, done that for the last 20, 30, 80 years or whatever. How lovely, how beautiful to have a church where the older women are helping the younger women work through all this stuff we're facing. And then next, how beautiful to have a church full of godly young guys. Uh, just one thing for the young men. Uh, I don't know whether it's only one thing because Paul's letting them off lightly or because he's being particularly pointed. I suspect he's being particularly pointed. He says, you young guys, one thing, self-control. Self-control. Get that right, other things will fall into place. Actually, that one thing is not just for young guys. He says the same to the older men. He says the same to the younger women. In chapter 1, he said exactly the same to the elders. And in Galatians 5, he says it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's for all of us. But young guys, you might have to work extra hard on that at a certain stage in life. To be self-controlled is to be sensible, clear-headed, is to have charge of our tongue, of our temper, of our ambitions, is to have control over your passions, whether they be sexual passions, or your passion for work, or your passion for gaming, or your passion for footy, or your passion for winning every argument that you have. Paul's saying, no, 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 you've, you've got to take control of those passions that often burst out of a young man. The culture teaches the opposite. The culture teaches self-expression, uh, self-determination, self-actualization. But the gospel 
has taught us to die to self because Christ died for us. And what a beautiful thing it is for churches to be cultivating, teaching, encouraging, helping young men to not be about themselves, but to be about Jesus and the gospel and other people. And what a beautiful thing when the church leaders are like that. Paul now, leveraging off the young man, talks to Titus, who's probably a reasonably young man, and he's going to set an example to the other young men in these things. He says, uh, verse 7, And everything set them an example by doing what's good. And your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness. There's that word again, soundness of speech, healthy speech that cannot be condemned. Now, we all know what an ugly thing it is when leaders are not like that. We've seen that all too clearly in recent times. The ugliness of church and gospel leaders lacking integrity. The huge risk that our gifts outpace our character. And so you can become a star, but you're not godly. I've been in gospel ministry now for about 30 years, which sadly means I'm in the category of older man. But I find now, I dread the thought of throwing the game in the last quarter. I don't want to be one of the stats. I don't want to mess up. And mess everything up. I want to be godly to the end. And Paul is saying, Titus, if you want to see gospel fruit and a beautiful church, you've got to guard your own heart. He said that to Timothy too, didn't he? Watch your life and doctrine closely. Those two things... Hand in hand. Mess up your life and it doesn't matter how sound your teaching has been, you'll mess up the whole lot. And you'll mess up a whole lot of other people as well. Finally, what a beautiful thing when God's people serve well at work. Paul is working through the household, and the typical household in uh, first century Roman Empire included slaves, and so it's actually very natural for him. Uh, you know, to us it might seem an odd transition, but in the household this is very natural. Up to about 30% of the population of the Roman Empire at the time were slaves, a, a huge number of slaves in society and in the church. Now, we've got to remember this is not uh, race-based slavery. Uh, it's not um, the same as the slave trade of the 17th and 18th centuries. In some cases, slavery could actually be very good employment. You could have a good boss and it could be a, a decent job. And, of course, in other cases, it could be utterly oppressive with appalling conditions. Paul's not sanctioning the oppression 
but he's talking about how to handle ourselves when we're working for bosses, good or bad. And he highlights two common common temptations for slaves at the time, bad-mouthing their bosses and pinching stuff from them. Two sort of classic slave temptations. And actually, it turns out they're terribly contemporary. Um, Still very easy to bad-mouth the boss and to nick stuff, even if it's on the time clock. Well, again, Paul envisages that the gospel has reshaped people's lives. (laughs) You have a new master now. He unpacks this in other places, doesn't he? You have a new master. You've been set free. The gospel is the ultimate emancipation. And with that freedom, we will serve God well, no matter what the boss is like. And the big question is not whether you love your work, but whether you will love at work. We're too big these days on making uh, career satisfaction, job fulfillment, our big measure. Paul can say, look, even if you're a slave, and if you don't want to be a slave, even if you were to have a miserable master, the, the big issue is not do you love your work, it's do you love at work? And do you love even your non-Christian master? It's actually a powerful inverting of structures here because the slave is now positioned to bless his master and do him good. Paul envisages workplaces where Christians are trustworthy, reliable, hardworking. Well, friends, here, as he's gone through this category, here is a picture of a beautiful church. And it's not the building or the programs or the music. It's the lives of all of God's people shaped by the gospel. Gospel Gospel-fueled holiness is what makes a church beautiful. We need churches like that. We need lots of churches like that around our country. But why? That's the, that's the last thing that Paul shows us in this passage. We've seen the what, we've seen the who, but why? Now, there's a real little trick for us to navigate here, and it's important to get it right. The real why of godly living is in verses 11 to 14, the verses I'm not allowed to talk about. The real why of godly living is the gospel. Why live godly lives? Because the gospel has changed us. Grace has saved us. And grace, I'm really sorry, Richard, I don't know where you are. Um, Grace teaches us to say no and say yes. I won't go there. But that's the real reason why we live godly lives, because of the powerful work of God for the grace of God. But there's another reason There's another why in these verses as well. It's a subsidiary why, but Paul gives it three times along the way in verses 5, 8, and 10. And you'll see it in your translations with the clauses beginning with the words, so that. So that. Why love your husbands? So that your husbands won't malign the word of God, verse 5. Why be a godly leader, Titus, verse 8? So that those who oppose you will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about you. Why obey your boss, 
Verse 10, so that in every way you might make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. That's not why do it, but why doing it makes a world of difference. The unbelieving husband has such a godly, loving, kind-hearted, good, good wife that it's very hard for him to say anything negative about her new faith in Jesus. It's made her actually a really beautiful person. The church leader who's under fire actually has such integrity of character that those who are attacking his views find it hard to attack him personally. And that sounds somewhat familiar, doesn't it, right here in Melbourne at the moment? I loved what Gillan McLaughlin, AFL boss, CEO, said about Andrew Thorburn. He said, I've spoken to Andrew. He's a first-class person. I regard him as a friend, and he's got great values. And to be honest with you, he said, that he went with his faith doesn't surprise me because he's a person of great conviction. That's exactly what, what Paul's talking about. People might not agree with your faith or your views, but at the end of the day, you're a person who's adorned the gospel. And that's the language of the final clause here in these verses talking to slaves, but it really sums up the whole passage. So that in every way, we will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. The word attractive was used, or is the word adorned, used for um, sometimes for setting out jewels and jewellery to show and display its beauty. You know how if you go to a jeweller's shop, they'll, they'll often... Um, put out the, the jewellery on a black cloth or a velvet cushion in order to, to display so you can see more clearly the beauty of those jewels. The black cloth doesn't make the jewels any more precious, but it shows how beautiful they are. The gospel is the greatest jewel of all. And our lives don't make the gospel any more precious. Nothing can make the gospel more precious than it already is. But our lives can help display the beauty of the gospel. And I think this is perhaps the greatest challenge of our day. What we believe is despised. The word of God is maligned. We are opposed. Our values are seen, in the words of our state premier here in Victoria, as appalling, intolerant, bigoted. We clearly need to buckle in for the ride. It's going to be a rough journey. But hang in there. Hang in there. Because along the way, I think it's also going to become clear that our culture's values can be pretty harmful. Not as inclusive as they seem not as loving and supportive as they first appear. 
not as freeing as people hope for. Our culture is promising this secular gospel of love and freedom and fulfillment, but it doesn't have what it takes to deliver on that promise. And so when people are spat out on the shores of the the wild sea of cultural change, they'll have to look somewhere else to find love and freedom and fulfilment. And you might be able to say, well, why don't you come along to my church? Just try it out. Like, I don't expect you to believe what we believe. But I reckon you might find at our church some of the most loving, free, fulfilled people you'll ever meet. I think it's a, it's a beautiful church community. We need to be able to do that, friends. More and more, we need to be able to invite people to beautiful churches made up of men and women, old and young, workers and bosses, living in a way that is actually surprisingly attractive. Attractive because their lives reflect the beauty of God our Saviour. Can we pray? We want to thank you, Lord God, for the beauty of the gospel, for sound doctrine that's healthy and vibrant and full of real life. And we pray, Lord God, that that gospel that we love would shape us and change us, that it would grow us in godliness and holiness, that it would impact the way that we relate to others and do family life and do work. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would shape us and shape our churches into beautiful places that show the beauty of you, our Saviour. Lord God, we pray that across this country, there'd be hundreds and hundreds of beautiful churches made up of people who love Jesus and have been changed by him. And we pray that every one of us here today would be part of that, part of the beautiful display of what you have done for us in the gospel. We pray this for your glory and the honour of Jesus Christ our King. Amen. This talk has been brought to you by the Gospel Coalition Australia. Visit our website at thegospelcoalition.org.au to find other resources for your encouragement.